Chapter Five of the Knights of Arthur by Frederick Pohl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five. The name of the place was Bayonne. Vern said, "One of them's got to have oil, Sam. It has to." Sure, I said. There's no question about it. Look, this is where the tankers came to discharge oil. They come in here, pump the oil into the refinery tanks, and— Vern, I said, let's look, shall we? He shrugged, and we hopped off the little outboard motorboat onto a landing stage. The tankers towered over us, rusty and screeching as the waves rubbed them against each other. There were fifty of them there at least, and we poked around them for hours. The hatches were rusted shut and unmanageable but you could tell a lot by sniffing. Gasoline odor was out. Smell of seaweed and dead fish was out. But the heavy, rank smell of fuel oil, that was what we were sniffing for. Crews had been aboard these ships when the missiles came, and crews were still aboard. Beyond the two-part superstructures of the tankers, the skyline of New York was visible. I looked up, sweating, and saw the Empire State Building, and imagined Amy up there looking out toward us. She knew we were here. It was her idea. She had scrounged up a naval engineer, or what she called a naval engineer. He had once been a stoker on a ferryboat. But he claimed he knew what he was talking about when he said the only thing the Queen needed to make her go was oil. And so we left him aboard to tinker and polish with a couple of helpers Amy detached from the police force, and we tackled the oil problem. Which meant Bayonne, which was where we were. It had to be a tanker with at least a fair portion of its cargo intact, because the Queen was a thirsty creature, drinking fuel not by the shot or gallon, but by the ton. Sam! Sam Dunlap! I looked up, startled. Five ships away, across the U of the mooring, Vern Ingdahl was bellowing at me through cupped hands. "'I've found it!' he shouted. "'Oil! Lots of oil! Come look!' I clasped my hands over my head and looked around. It was a long way around to the tanker Vern was on, hopping from deck to deck, detouring around open stretches. I shouted, I'll get the boat. He waved and climbed up on the rail of the ship, his feet dangling over, looking supremely happy and pleased with himself. He lit a cigarette, leaned back against the upward sweep of the rail, and waited. It took me a little time to get back to the boat, and a little more time than that to get the damn motor started. Huh, Vern. Let's not take that lousy little twelve-horsepower, Sam, he said reasonably. The twenty-five's more what we need. And maybe it was, but none of the motors had been started in most of a decade, and the twenty-five was just that much harder to start now. I struggled over it, swearing for twenty minutes or more. The tanker, by whose side we'd had tied up, began to swing toward me as the tide changed to outgoing. For a moment there I was counting seconds, expecting to have to make a jump for it before the big red steel flank squeezed the little outboard flat against the piles. But I got it started, just about in time. 
I squeezed out of the trap with not much more than a yard to spare, and threaded my way into open water. There was a large, threatening sound, like an enormous, slow cough. I rounded the stern of the last tanker between me and open water, and looked into the eye of a fire-breathing dragon. Vern and his cigarettes. The tanker was loose and ablaze, bearing down on me with the slow drift of the ebbing tide. From the hatches on the forward deck, two fountains of fire spurted up and out like enormous nostrils spouting flame. The hawsers had been burned through, the ship was adrift, I was in its path, and so was the frantically splashing figure of Vern Engdahl, trying desperately to swim out of the way in the water before it. What kept it from blowing up in our faces I will never know, unless it was the pressure in the tanks forcing the flame out, but it didn't. Not just then. Not until I had Engdahl aboard and we were out in the middle of the Hudson, staring back, and then it went up all right, all at once, like a missile or a volcano, and there had been fifty tankers in that one mooring, but there weren't any any more, not in shape for us to use. I looked at Engdahl. He said defensively, "'Honest, Sam, I thought it was oil. It smelled like oil. How was I to know—' "'Shut up,' I said. He shrugged, injured. "'But it's all right, Sam. No fooling. There are plenty of other tankers around. Plenty.' down toward the Amboys, maybe moored out in the channel. There must be. We'll find them. No, I said. You will. And that was all I said, because I am forgiving by nature. But I thought a great deal more. Surprisingly, though, he did find a tanker with a full load the very next day. It became a question of getting the tanker to the Queen. I left that part up to Vern, since he claimed to be able to handle it. It took him two weeks. First it was finding the tanker, then it was locating a tug in shape to move, then it was finding someone to pilot the tug, then it was waiting for a clear and windless day, because the pilot he found had got all his experience sailing starboats on Long Island Sound, and then it was easing the tanker out of Newark Bay into the channel, down to the pier in the North River. Oh, it was work, and no fooling. I enjoyed it very much, because I didn't have to do it. But I had enough to keep me busy at that. I found a man who claimed he used to be a radio engineer, and if he was an engineer, I was Albert Einstein's mother. But at least he knew which end of a soldering iron was hot. There was no need for any great skill, since there weren't going to be very many vessels to communicate with. Things began to move. The advantage of a ship like the Queen, for our purposes, was that the thing was pretty well automated to start out with. I mean, never mind what the seafaring unions required in the way of flesh-and-blood personnel. What it came down to was that one man in the bridge or wheelhouse could pretty well make any part of the ship go or not go. The engine-room telegraph wasn't hooked up to control the engines, no, but the wiring diagram needed only a few little changes to get the same effect, 
because where in the original concept a human being would take a look at the repeater down in the engine room, nod wisely, and push a button that would make the engine stop, start, or whatever, why, all we had to do was cut out the middleman, so to speak. Our genius of the soldering iron replaced flesh and blood with some wiring, and presto, we had centralized engine control. The steering was even easier. Steering was a matter of electronic control and servo motors to begin with. Wind jammers in the old movies might have a man lashed to the wheel whose muscle power turned the rudder. But believe me, a big superliner doesn't. The rudders weigh as much as any old wind jammer ever did from stem to stern. You have to have motors to turn them and it was only a matter of getting out the old soldering iron again. By the time we were through, we had every operational facility of the Queen hooked up to a single panel on the bridge. Ingdahl showed up with the oil tanker just about the time we got the wiring complete. We rigged up a pump and filled the bunkers till they were topped off full. We guessed, out of hope and ignorance, that there was enough in there to take us half a dozen times around the world at normal cruising speed, and maybe there was. Anyway, it didn't matter, for surely we had enough to take us anywhere we wanted to go, and then there would be more. We crossed our fingers, turned our ex-ferry stoker loose, pushed a button. Smoke came out of the stacks. The antique screws began to turn over. Astern, a sort of hump of muddy water appeared. The queen quivered underfoot. The mooring hawsers creaked and sang. "'Turn her off!' screamed Engdahl. "'She's headed for Times Square.' Well, that was an exaggeration, but not much of one, and there wasn't any sense in stirring up the bottom mud. I pushed buttons, and the screws stopped. I pushed another button, and the big engines quietly shut themselves off, and in a few moments the stacks stopped puffing their black smoke. The ship was alive. Solemnly, Ingdahl and I shook hands. We had the thing licked. All that is, except for the one small problem of Arthur. The thing about Arthur was they had put him to work. It was in the power station, just as Amy had said, and Arthur didn't like it. The fact that he didn't like it was a splendid reason for staying away from there, but I let my kind heart overrule my good sense and paid him a visit. It was way over on the east side, miles and miles from any civilized area. I borrowed Amy's M.G. and borrowed Amy to go with it, and the two of us packed a picnic lunch and set out. There were reports of deer on Avenue A, so I brought a rifle, but we never saw one. And if you want my opinion, those reports were nothing but wishful thinking. I mean, if people couldn't survive, how could deer? We finally threaded our way through the clogged streets and parked in front of the power station. There's supposed to be a guard, Amy said doubtfully. I looked. I looked pretty carefully, because if there was a guard, I wanted to see him. 
The Major's orders were that vital defense installations, such as the power station, the PX, and his own barracks building, were to be guarded against trespassers on a shoot-on-sight basis, and I wanted to make sure that the guard knew we were privileged persons, with passes signed by the Major's own hand. But we couldn't find him. So we walked in through the big door, peered around, listened for the sounds of machinery, and walked in that direction. And then we found him. He was sound asleep. Amy, looking indignant, shook him awake. "'Is that how you guard military property?' she scolded. "'Don't you know the penalty for sleeping at post?' The guard said something irritable and unhappy. I got her off his back with some difficulty, and we located Arthur. Picture a shiny, four-gallon tomato can, with the label stripped off, hanging by wire from the flashing light panels of an electric computer. That was Arthur. The shiny metal cylinder was his prosthetic tank. The wires were the leads that served him for fingers, ears, and mouth. The glittering panel was the control center for the Consolidated Edison Eastside Power Plant Number One. "'Hi, Arthur,' I said, and a sudden, ear-splitting, thunderous hiss was his way of telling me that he knew I was there. I didn't know exactly what he was trying to say, but I didn't want to. Fortune spares me few painful moments, and I accept with gratitude the ones it does. The Major's boys hadn't bothered to bring Arthur's typewriter along. I mean, who cares what a generator governor has to offer in the way of conversation? So all he could do was blow off steam from the distant boilers. Well, not quite all. Lights flashed, a bucket conveyor began crashing to dump loads of coal, and an alarm gong began to pound. Please, Arthur, I begged. Shut up a minute and listen, will you? More lights. The gong rapped a half-dozen times sharply and stopped. I said, Arthur, you've got to trust Vern and me. We have this thing figured out now. We've got the Queen Elizabeth. A shattering hiss of steam, meaning delight this time, I thought, or anyway, hoped. And it's only a question of time until we can carry out the plan. Byrne says to apologize for not looking in on you. Hiss. But he's been busy. And after all, you know it's more important to get everything ready so you can get out of this place, right? Psst, said Amy. She nodded briefly past my shoulder. I looked, and there was the guard looking sleepy and surly and definitely suspicious. I said heartily, So as soon as I fix it up with the Major, we'll arrange for something better for you. Meanwhile, Arthur, you're doing a capital job, and I want you to know that all of us loyal New York citizens and public servants deeply appreciate thundering crashes, bangs, gongs, hisses, and the scream of a steam whistle he'd found somewhere. Arthur was mad. So long, Arthur, I said, and we got out of there, just barely in time. At the door we found that Arthur had reversed the coal scoops, and a growing mound of it was pouring into the street where we left the M.G. parked. 
We got the car started just as the heap was beginning to reach the bumpers, and at that the paint would never again be the same. Oh, yes, he was mad. I could only hope that in the long run he would forgive us, since we were acting for his best interest, after all. Anyway, I thought we were. Still, things worked out pretty well, especially between Amy and me. Ingdahl had the theory that she had been dodging the Major so long that anybody looked good to her, which was hardly flattering. But she and I were getting along right well. She said, worriedly, "'The only thing, Sam, is that, frankly, the Major has just about made up his mind that he wants to marry me.' "'He is married,' I yelped. "'Naturally he's married. He's married to, so far, one hundred and nine women. He's been hitting off a marriage a month for a good many years now, and, to tell you the truth, I think he's got the habit. Anyway, he's got his eye on me.' I demanded jealously. Has he said anything? She picked up a sheet of onion-skin paper out of her bag and handed it to me. It was marked Top Secret, and it really was, because it hadn't gone through his regular office. I knew that, because I was his regular office. It was only two lines of text and sloppily typed at that. Lieutenant Amy Bankhead will report to HQ at seventeen hundred hours, one July, to carry out orders of the commanding officer. The first of July was only a week away. I handed the orders back to her. And the orders of the commanding officer will be, I wanted to know. She nodded. You guessed it. I said, we'll have to work fast. On the 30th of June we invited the Major to come aboard his palatial new yacht. "'Ah, oh, thank you,' he said gratefully. "'A surprise for my birthday? <laughs> ah, you loyal members of my command make up for all that I've lost, all of it.' He nearly wept. I said, "'Sir, the pleasure is all ours,' and backed out of his presence. What's more, I meant every word." It was a select party of slightly over a hundred. All of the wives were there, barring twenty or thirty who were in disfavor. Still, that left over eighty. The Major brought half a dozen of his favorite officers. His bodyguard and our crew added up to a total of thirty men. We were set up to feed a hundred and fifty, and to provide liquor for twice that many, so it looked like a nice friendly brawl. I mean, we had our radio operator handing out highballs as the guests stepped on board. The Major was touched and delighted. It was exactly the kind of party he liked. He came up the gangplank with his face one great beaming smile. "'Eat, drink,' he cried, "'and be merry.' He stretched out his hands to Amy, standing by behind the radio op. For tomorrow we wed, he added, and sentimentally kissed his proposed bride. I cleared my throat. Uh, how about inspecting the ship, Major? I interrupted. Plenty of time for that, my boy, he said. Plenty of time for that. But he let go of Amy and looked around him. Well, it was worth looking at. 
Those Englishmen really knew how to build a luxury liner. God bless them. The girls began roaming around. It was a hot day and late afternoon, and the girls began discarding jackets and boleros, and that began to annoy the Major. Ah, uh, cover up there, he ordered one of his wives. You two there, what's your name? Put that blouse back on. It gave him something to think about. He was a very jealous man, Amy had said, and when you stop to think about it, a jealous man with a hundred and nine wives to be jealous of really has a job. Anyway, he was busy watching his wives and keeping his military cabinet and his bodyguard busy, too, and that made him too busy to notice when I tipped the high sign to Vern and took off. End of chapter 5